0: morning, everybody. How are you all doing? Awesome. Moms, did you have a great Mother's Day? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity once again to come together to spend time in your word. Be with us as we share stories and especially Lord, what Joel two has uh, in store for us in Jesus name. Amen. Dr. Uh, John Goach tells of a time where he was a younger man. It was a cool and crispy Saturday night in the Midwest. The lights were on. It was a Saturday night. The fans were filling the stands, the band was playing and they were ready for some football. The opening kick takes place. The game was intense. Back and forth, there was a touchdown, touchdown there, field goal there, perhaps maybe an interception, maybe a fumble, and then it really, really got serious. Nobody was giving up any momentum. And with the clock ticking down toward halftime, the opposing team decided to go for it all. The quarterback, he took a seven drop step back while his lineman formed a perfect pocket around him. Now, John was an outside linebacker and he read with his eyes. He saw the play, he was anticipating everything developing. He dropped deep into his zone of coverage and anticipating that the tight end would try to get out and try to go for the pass. So he watches him. The play is playing out. But instead of throwing to the tight end, John looks and he sees one of the wide receivers running on the sideline as fast as possible. The defensive back is matching his every step running faster and faster. The quarterback throws to the wide receiver. Both wide receiver and the defensive back jump up into the air. And fortunately for John, the defensive back, his fingers just barely touch the football and taps it away from the receiver. And John thought, Yes. But as the wide receiver, and the defensive back fall to the floor, their legs get entangled. And when they landed the wide receiver lets out one of the worst screams of his life, realizing that he had injured his knee. It was so bad. I'll just say the gory details just it was really bad. John saw what had happened. The referee blew the whistle for all of the, the medical to come out. And they had to put the young man on a stretcher. His obvious injury, while though gruesome at best, eventually came back stronger than ever. How many of you have perhaps broken a bone and when you break that bone, it's actually stronger than before you broke it? Anybody? Can anybody attest to that? Okay, we got a few people. We got two people. <laughs> no, no, but it's it's scientifically proven that in some cases, when you break a bone, it's actually stronger than before you broke it. Now, John lifts up this point too, though, where he says, I wonder, isn't that exactly what God does with our lives as well? Perhaps that is why God says in Psalms 51:17 it says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart oh god thou wilt not despise. God desires a broken heart because he knows that when we come to him in that condition god can make all things new. Amen. And give us a new heart a new spirit and we can be better, we can be stronger. So as you go about, maybe in your life right now, you're questioning things, seeing things seem to be broken. And yet God can take that broken heart and do wonderful and immeasurable things in our lives. So let's go to the book of Joel. Joel chapter two. Last week, we kind of basically had to blitz (laughs) through Joel two, that was not my intention. But I wanted to cover a lot of stuff. So kind of just as a as a recap to remind us of what happened. Initially in the book of Joel chapter one and half of half of chapter two, uh, the first part is there was the the day of the Lord, there was a plague of locusts that came into the land of Judah, and basically decimated and annihilated everything. Now when we look in the Bible, was there ever a plague of locusts that came through a land? Can anybody remember? Through the Egypt, right? And Basically, the locusts ravaged Egypt, except the tables have turned. Instead of going against Judah's enemies. It's on Judah itself. And why? Why did this happen? We don't know exactly no why. uh, Other than Judah was not being faithful to God and God had to get their attention and say, Hey, you guys have strayed. Please come back. But there's also not just one day of the Lord, there's a second day of the Lord, a coming time where if they don't get their act together, if they do not change from their ways, if they don't repent, if they do not rend their heart, there is an army of locusts, possibly potentially another army coming in and taking over. Yet, alas, we find that God does not forget God's people. In fact, God pleads with the people, starting with the spiritual leaders, of that time, hey, come on, let's get things back in order. Because remember, when the plague came through, it not only decimated them economically, there was no grain, they could not do agriculture, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't grow fruit and vegetables fast enough to save them. And there was also a spiritual cost because those animals that maybe still stayed alive would have nothing to eat, and there would be no ability to have sacrifices. So, It was a physical issue, it was an economical issue, it was a mental, but also a spiritual issue. Now, sometimes I hear this narrative that uh, God's grace can only be found in the New Testament. And yet when we read through the Old Testament, there's plenty of examples that, especially as we're going to read, that God is a God full of grace, Amen? amen? So let's just remind ourselves, okay? That God is a God of grace. So, we've talked a little bit about Joel one. Joel has already talked about the seeds of grace and forgiveness. But chapter two it takes it a step further, and not just grace, but actually restoration. Okay, our, our theme series uh, theme uh, title is called "Restored, Better Than New." So, what happens? Let's go to Joel chapter two, verse eighteen. We all there? Okay. So. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain and new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nation. So God right here is already, he is reminding them, hey, I'm going to come in and I'm going to restore you. I will drive the northern horde from you, push it into the parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its Midwestern ranks in the Mediterranean Sea and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Okay. So the first thing that we can take from this passage is that God promises restoration for Joel. Please come back to me. I am full of grace and I will restore you. So restoration. God promises to restore the land. They will not be wasted away. Now let's continue. Do not be afraid land of Judah be glad and what? Rejoice. Rejoice. Surely the Lord has done what? Great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the wild, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad. And remember, there's, whenever you read a passage, look for commonality. Look for things that repeat. It says be glad several times be glad people of Zion. Rejoice in Lord your God for he has given you the autumn rains, because he is faithful. Remember, scorched land, what do you need to do to enable to have it to grow? You need water, rain. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain, the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And here's a key verse. Verse 25. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten the great locust and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. So God is basically saying right here, look, what's done is done. But guess what? It is going to, uh, I'm going to redo and remake everything new. So much so that in verse 26, you're not just going to have food to eat, you're going to have plenty to eat until you are what? You are full. Anybody ever go to a really great restaurant, maybe one of the favorite restaurants that you love and you just you eat to your heart's content, your favorite meal that you just basically are the point of like, Okay, I need to be wheeled out in a barrel. (laughs) Because if I walk, I'm gonna fall down. (laughs) That's a good feeling, right? (laughs) God says, I am going to give you plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be what? Shamed. Shamed. Because also remember that the, the surrounding nations, they're looking and eyeing Judah. They're thinking, how can I take this land, see this great opportunity? Then you will know that I am in Israel, for I am the Lord, your God, and there will be no other. Never again will my people be shamed. So one of the things that we can take away here is rejoice and be glad. Now, oftentimes when calamity or frustration strikes us, it's so much easier to whine than to thank God. Right? How many times, in fact, we did a series on this. How many times have we read from the scripture, more particularly Philippians 4, rejoice and be glad? And yet when the hard times come, the calamity, the frustration, the missed opportunities, and we think why when we should probably be saying, rejoice, Lord, I'm going to rejoice you even though things are not going the way that I want them to. Can you all, can you all, uh, have you all experienced that at some point maybe in your life? There's there's a story told of uh, an individual who was riding a a bus and she, she saw a housekeeper with lovely golden hair and she was jealous. She wanted lovely golden hair and she seemed so happy and yet she felt just fair. And when she got up to leave, she noticed that the young woman, the housekeeper, had a hobble to her step. And she had one foot and a prosthetic leg. But as she passed, she smiled at her. To which the lady said, Oh God, forgive me when I whine. I have two working feet. The world is mine. And when I stopped by to buy some sweets, the lad who had served me had such charm. He seemed to radiate this awesome cheer. His manner was so kind and warm. And I said, it's nice to deal with you. Such courtesy, such manners, I seldom find. He turned and said, oh, thank you, sir, ma'am. And then I saw that he was blind. Oh, God, forgive me when I whine. I have two eyes. The world is mine. And then when I was walking down the street, I saw a child with a set of blue eyes. He stood and watched the others play. It seemed he knew not what to do. I stopped a moment and I said, why why don't you go join the others, young one? Yet he looked ahead without a word, because he couldn't hear me. Oh God, forgive me. When I whine, I have two ears. The world is mine. With two feet to take me where I'd go, with eyes to see the sunsets glow, the ears to hear what I would know, I am blessed indeed. The world is mine. Oh God, forgive me. When I whine, mm. when I read that, that spoke to me. I felt like this arrow just like shoots straight to my heart because it's so easy for us to want to whine, and maybe we do have reason to whine. But has whining ever helped us? It may get you your way for a little bit, but when you maybe whine to your superiors, maybe when you whine to your parents or your siblings. Are you really getting ahead? Not really. It's so easy to take pity on ourselves when we have so much we can be grateful for. For instance, you woke up, amen? You're above ground. That's a blessing. Some of you have the ability to drive here. You have a car. You have a roof over your head. That's a blessing. Amen. Has the land been scorched? Is the earth parched with dirt? There's dirt, but at least there's still some moisture. Amen. Let us count the blessings that we have. So may we rejoice and be glad. Now, to go towards the end of this last passage here, in Joel chapter two, there's a very significant passage verses 28 through 32, that is very important for us to be mindful of. And it's a common, it's probably the dominant theme actually in the book of Joel, at least four, I think, if not five times, there is this phrase called the day of the Lord. So in verse 28 it says, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on how many people? All people, not just, not just Elijah or Elisha or Joel or Isaiah, but all people, your sons and your daughters will what? For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be what? Deliverance. Deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord could mean a couple of things. <laughs> the day of the Lord could be a, a good thing where God intervenes and steps in and helps the people. It could also be a day of the Lord where, hey, you guys, you have greatly strayed. You need to come back to me. But there's this major theme and it's not just here in the book of Joel, the day of the Lord can be found uh, in the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos and Obadiah, we're gonna get to that in two weeks, by the way, Zephaniah and Malachi, and not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, we find in 1 Corinthians 5.5 or Thessalonians 5.2, 2 Peter three. Uh, and it actually says that terminology, the day of the Lord, whereas in Matthew 11, or 1 Corinthians, they, they they change it up a little bit where instead of as day of the Lord, it's the day of judgment, or the, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so for the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord is the time when God clearly comes near to visit the world and intervene in human history. Obviously, that can help happen more than once. Amen. By the way, that's that's a quote from John Dibdahl. So God has intervened in a mighty way by protecting God's people, helping them, but also reminding them, hey, Judah, Israel, you have strayed, please come back to me. Now, out of this out of this passage, verses 28 through 32. There are several promises, okay. God promises the Spirit. There's also nine references to this passage alone in the New Testament God promises the Holy Spirit. But not only that, God not only promises the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is poured out. It's not like where you get a pitcher and you fill up a cup of water. I wish I had that opportunity, but I didn't want to make a mess. It's not like God takes a pitcher and pours out water on a cup. But it's like the Niagara Falls being poured over right? The promise of the Holy Spirit is not something small, but it's for all people who desire to hear and be with God. Everyone, everyone can receive the Spirit. In fact, it says, uh, even on my servants, okay, Joel is making a significant point. It's not just the prophets or the leaders, but even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And finally, everyone can have communion or interaction with God. We don't have to go to somebody to vouch for us to go to God, because we can deal with God directly. Amen. Amen. Now, God is revealing who God is. But if we just look at this passage alone, we'd be doing ourselves a great disservice because guess what? Somebody quotes this passage. In fact, if we go to the book of Acts chapter two, a very significant event happens in Acts chapter two, verses 21, 17 through 21. One of the disciples stands up Acts two verses 17 through 21. I'm sorry, I didn't get a chance to put this on I came to this afterwards. But In Acts 2, verses 17 through 21, it says, Peter literally quotes the book of Joel and it says, in these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Sound familiar? Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out the spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. But in verse 20, when he changes it just a little bit, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. 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 Amen. Now in verse 32 of Joel, Joel is talking to the people the Judahites back then. In in Peter uh, Acts 2 he's pointing out that these things have been fulfilled and guess what they are not just for today but it's continuing the day of the Lord is not just one day can be several days. Why does Peter proclaim this message? What's taking place here in the context of this passage? What's happening? Some great event has happened. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One word to describe it is called Pentecost. Okay, it had been prophesied and all of a sudden Right before this, as they're speaking, there's other people of many different nations. And the disciples are talking, they're saying great things, everybody can understand everything, even though they're all speaking in different languages. I can't remember the name of the nations off the top of my head right now. But if you were a Greek, if you were a Jew, if you came from other places, you understood your language. And you could only come to the conclusion that God was doing a great and mighty work in these disciples. And it doesn't just stop there. Because if you look through the God, the whole book of Acts, The people are prophesying, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit is doing a great and mighty work. And everybody has the opportunity to not only talk to God, but can be led by the Spirit, because that's what God wants to do in our lives, amen. So what does this all mean for us? Every week I get together with Bill, and he always asks this really difficult question. So what? (laughs) How does Joel 2 help us in our lives? Number one, are we perfect people? No, we all have the opportunity to grow, amen? So there's always places in our lives that we could change and we can grow and adapt, much like the people of Judah. God is pleading with them, please come back and guess what? As you come to me and I'm going to work in your lives, guess what I'm going to restore the land. But to do so admits that, oh, I was wrong at some point. How many of us love to admit that we're wrong, especially when we have to publicly acknowledge it? Oh, that's a hard thing to do, right? Especially admitting like, I'm not perfect, I'm flawed. But the beauty of Joel is it's a reminder of God's faithfulness that God can indeed restore us. And just like the young man who broke his leg, his leg was healed, and it was stronger and better than ever. God can do an amazing, wonderful work in our lives. To close with, okay, there was a story told of two guys named Jim and Alex that were at a dealership where Alex worked at an auto, uh, auto dealership. And Uh, Alex says, Jim, I feel like I'm a hypocrite. Every time I go to church because I fail to live for Christ so often. Alex, he tells Alex, well, what do you call this part of the dealership? And Jim says, it's the showroom with uh, all of the cars. And it says behind that you have the parts department and you have the service. And and then uh, Jim says, what if I told you I didn't bring my car to the service department, even though the shocks are shot, the engine is running really rough. Alex says, Well, you'd be a knucklehead to not take it back there. You need to fix it, right? Well, Jim points out, yeah, you're absolutely right. Now let's get back to here. The church. Okay, in your initial desire to follow Jesus, you give your life but to Christ, but instead of thinking of the church as a showroom where we try to lie to each other, everything is great. Our lives are fine. Everything's perfect. Nothing to see here. You're a mess. And that's why we are here. God does not call the perfect people to be here at church. God calls the broken and willing to be humbled and restored to this place. I'm sorry if you're here because you want to lie to ourselves. You're not going to get very far. Amen. Let's be honest with ourselves. We all have areas in our life where we can grow. And we need to be restored. So may you allow the Holy Spirit to do a great work in your life. Just as the people in Joel were called to seek forgiveness, to rend your heart, to be honest with yourselves, to acknowledge that God is God and that we need to turn our lives to the way that God desires to live our lives. And not just because, oh, God is being this this dictator, but no, because God wants us to have not just a good life, but a great life. Because the ways of God are a great life. May you seek the Lord, rend your heart, may you follow God, may you find restoration. Now where in your life have you experienced deep loss and regret? Because I'm sure the people in Joel felt a lot of loss. And they probably experienced a lot of regret. Amen. So let us take that last passage verses 28 through 32. And it says, seek the Holy Spirit. May you pray for restoration, for healing, and that you may rejoice and be glad. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your great love. And God, sometimes we have to be woken up. Sometimes we have to have a wake up call. But admitting that we sometimes are not perfect people, that we make mistakes is hard. But Lord, you are full of grace and love, and you desire to seek, uh, have us seek you. Restore us, heal us, help us in all that we do, Lord. May we be the faithful people you have called us to be, not only here in this building in Downey, but throughout the city and wherever we are, wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we go. In Jesus' name. Amen. Grace and peace, everybody.